Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. James chapter 5. Hallelujah. God is good, isn't he? Amen. Verse number 16 says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The fervent, effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We pointed out that too often Christians, and I would probably say most Christians, when they look at this verse, they think, well, you know, That means if I can get the right person to pray for me, uh, then something will happen. If I can find someone who is righteous and who knows how to pray, God will hear their prayer because it's the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. Most, Most Christians do not consider themselves righteous. But we found out, and go over to Romans and look at the fifth chapter, Romans chapter five, Verse number 17, it says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Notice righteousness is a gift to the believer. There's a difference, and most people don't understand it, but there's a difference between righteousness and holiness. Uh, righteousness has, has an effect on holiness and it will produce holiness, but righteousness and holiness are not the same thing. Holiness has to do with your holy conduct, living a holy life. Righteousness is right standing with God. And the Bible says that when we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we were made the righteousness of God in Christ. We were given the gift of of righteousness. That simply means that we were placed into a position of right standing with God. And uh, right standing with God also means that we have the ability to come into God's presence anytime. And we don't have to come into God's presence feeling ashamed and uh, unworthy and, and like we don't belong and And that's the reason so often Christians are always trying to find someone else to pray for them. And not just one person. Most most of the time, people want a lot of people praying for them. If I can just get, you know, the church to pray. And then sometimes you hear people will say, you know, we've we've shared this prayer request, you know, to different churches. Now we've got six different churches praying. All the people, surely that person that we're praying for is going to be helped or delivered or healed or whatever. And, uh, and, And the fact of the matter is the number of people praying is not what is important. It's praying in faith. And you cannot pray in faith if you don't feel like God will hear you. You cannot be in faith if you don't feel like you you have uh, the, the right to come before God. And so right standing means the ability to come into God's presence without any sense of unworthiness, any sense, any sense of condemnation or guilt or any sense of not belonging. 
It, it means the ability to come into the presence of God as though sin never existed. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is a gift and it is a position. We are in the position of righteousness. Amen? And so we talked about how important it is for uh, believers to get their understanding uh, uh, developed in these truths. We were looking last week at uh, the book of Hebrews. Let's go over there again and pick up where we were. Hebrews chapter 10. In chapter 10 and verse number one. Now in the book of Hebrews, uh, I, I believe the apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but unlike his other epistles, his name is not on this epistle. There is no uh, direct evidence or proof, I should say there is evidence, but there's not any uh, absolute proof that Paul wrote this because he didn't put his name on it. Uh, in fact, there is no name. No one is named in this epistle. And so uh, today it's most popular among theologians to discredit the idea that, that Paul wrote it. Most modern uh, theologians and commentators will say that it was not Paul and then they have you know, a lot of different ideas of who it might have been. The evidence uh, internally though is that the apostle Paul wrote it. I believe he wrote it, but we wouldn't wanna be dogmatic about it. But uh, the writer of Hebrews, uh, he is in, in this book he is con contrasting the difference between the sacrifices of the law and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 10, verse number one, he says, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, talking about the sacrifices in the Old Testament, can never, he said, these things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Notice that the people who, who were uh, the ones uh, for whom the sacrifices were made, it didn't produce in them what it needed to produce. It did not make them right. There was a deficiency in how it left them. And then he goes on to explain. He said, uh, 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 he said that uh, can never with these same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year make those who approach perfect for then, for then would they not have ceased to, cease to be offered. In other words, if, if those uh, for whom the sacrifices were made, if it had worked, if it had produced perfection or completeness in them, then there would not have been any other need for further sacrifice. He said, would they, would they then not have ceased to be offered? For in that case, once purified, would they, they would have had no more consciousness of sins. That was the big deficit. That was the big problem with the Old Testament sacrifices is actually it's twofold uh, because he goes down and says uh, in, yeah, in verse number four, he says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The blood of those sacrifices could never cleanse a person from sin and therefore, it left them uh, deficient, not only in the area of sin, but it left them deficient in the area of the consciousness of sin. They were never able to get free 
from a sense and a consciousness of sin. If we go back to the ninth chapter and uh, look at verse 11, uh, he talks about this again. In verse number, uh, chapter nine, verse number 11, it says, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean. Now that sprinkling there refers to in the Old Testament, they would shed the blood of these animals and they would dip uh, hassop into the, into the blood and with that, when with that they would sprinkle the blood on the altar and on some of the other utensils. So when it talks about the sprinkling, excuse me, that's what it's talking about. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean if, if that sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, the thing about the, the, the cleansing of the conscience, why is that so important? What, what is the cleansing of the conscience? We know that the, our, our conscience is the voice of our spirit. You are, every person uh, is a spirit. You are a spirit being. That's what you are. You have a soul, but you are not just a soul. You are a spirit who possesses a soul and your spirit and soul live inside your physical body. So man is a, is a triune being just like God is. God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. You and I are spirit, soul, and body. And it, the body has a voice. Hit yourself with a hammer and it will cry out to you. I mean, hit your thumb with a hammer. Don't hit your head with a hammer. Hit your thumb with a hammer and, uh, and your body will cry out. It has a voice. Feelings are the voice of the body. Your soul has a voice. The voice of your soul is your reasoning. Your, your mind, your will, your emotion, uh, uh, that's the voice of your soul. Your spirit has a voice and that's your conscience. And if you're, and if you're perceptive, you look down on the inside of you, you can discern between your conscience talking to you and your mind talking to you. There's a big difference. It, those, the, the, the information, uh, the questions or the thoughts or the ideas that come from your conscience and from your spirit and those that come from your mind, they come from a different direction. One comes from up here, the other comes from down on the inside of you. Your conscience is the voice of your spirit. Now, uh, God did more the blood of Jesus does more than just cleanse our thoughts. If you think of consciousness just in the sense of, you know, your feeling or your thoughts of unworthiness, the thoughts, you know, having a, a thinking up here that you're sinful. That's part of it, but really the washing of the water of the word will do that. 
But the blood of Jesus was shed to not only cleanse us from sin, but to cleanse our conscience, the voice of our spirit from sin. Now, why is that important? Go with me, you're here in Hebrews 9. Go back to Hebrews 10 and look at verse number 19. Therefore, brethren, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let, now notice, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, now notice, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He said that we are to have boldness to enter into the, to the holiness. Do you understand that when Moses in the Old Testament, he was instructed to build the tabernacle and he built the tabernacle which had an outer court and then it had a holy place and then it had a most holy place where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was and where the cherubim were located and there was a curtain that separated the most holy place and is also called the holiest of holies. There was a, a curtain separating that place from the holy place. And the priest could come into the holy place and, and make offerings and do things, but once a year, only once a year, the high priest only, not the other priest, but the high priest alone was allowed to go beyond that veil and go into the holy place to offer up blood sacrifices, to make atonement, that the word atonement means a covering. The blood of these animals only covered the sins of the people so that God could withhold judgment that was due upon them and pass over them and they could go for another year with the atoning blood having been shed. And so the priest could go in there, but he had to go in with great precautions uh, into that holy place or that most holy place. And so... Moses built that tabernacle according to the plan that he received from God and that plan, the earthly tabernacle was a mirror or a replica of the true tabernacle in heaven. There is a throne in heaven. There is a tabernacle, a temple, so to speak, in heaven where God dwells and uh, there is an altar there and there is a most holy place. Well, today... And then again, back up a little bit, when David uh, uh, gave the plans to Solomon and Solomon built the temple, he did the same thing. He built the same uh, type of, of uh, uh, setup with, with the, uh, the temple and the holy place and the most holy place. Well, all of that was a type of and, and a replica of the true tabernacle in heaven. So when it says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, you see, we don't just go when we go to the Lord in prayer, we don't go to that outer court. We don't just go to the, to the holy place. When we go before the Lord in prayer, we have access behind the veil because Jesus' flesh has become that veil. And we actually go into the most holy place. When Jesus was crucified on the cross and uh, while he was hanging on the cross, darkness fell on the, on the earth in the middle of the daytime. 
And there was a great earthquake and the Bible says that the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And this was a very thick fabric uh, curtain and an unseen hand, uh, which was the hand of God, reached up and just tore that curtain apart, signifying that the way into the most holy place had now been made available. And so today when we come before the Lord in prayer, we have access into the most holy place, the holiest. So this is what this is talking about. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest. Now, to someone from the old covenant, that's, that is a, a remarkable and startling idea because in the old covenant, not only the priest could go in to the most holy place, he only went in once a year and he went in under great precautions. He had to, he had to uh, sanctify himself and go through a, a number of things to, to make himself clean, to make himself ready. And, and they tied a, 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 a rope with bells on his, on his feet. And when he would go in behind that curtain, just in case if he wasn't right with God, he would die. He could not go into the presence of God where the glory of God was with sin in his life or he would die. And, and if he died, they couldn't go in and get him. So they would pull him with this rope and they'd pull him out. So, the, so for, the, for the Jews, it was a very sacred, very hallowed thing. You just don't go into the holiest place. Well, we do. We do. Therefore, brethren, having both, and we don't just go in with, you know, ducking and shy, you know, you know, shucking around and, you know, trying to, you know, see if we can get in without causing any trouble or get out, you know, without being struck dead. No, we go in boldly. Boldly. We're having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. Notice, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our conscience sprinkled from an evil, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, if, if, you're, if your conscience hasn't been washed, if you, don't, if you don't allow the blood of Jesus to say, well, isn't it automatic? Well, yes and no. Everything is done, but we have to, we have to, input, we have to put faith out for it. And the reason people's conscience uh, has not been cleansed the way it should have been is they're not exercising faith in the blood of Jesus to cleanse their, cleanse their conscience because they're still holding on to unworthiness. Now, when you see that in the new covenant, it's interesting, uh, we, we will talk about this a little bit more when I talk to you about the importance of reading Brother Hagin's book. I'm gonna cover this in a little more detail. The Apostle Paul received revelation uh, that surpassed the revelation that the other apostles received. The gospel, Paul said this in Galatians chapter three, or in, Galat in the book of Galatians, he said, the gospel that I received, that I preach, he said, I didn't get it from the other apostles. And you know, the other apostles had been the apostles of the lamb. They had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry and they were witnesses of his life, his death, his resurrection and, uh, and, and they were commissioned. Well, Paul came along later. He, he opposed the church. He persecuted the church in, in the early days. But God saved him, made, made an apostle out of him. 
And as soon as he, he was saved, he, he got alone with the Lord because of the call of God. The, you know, the, the Lord sent Ananias to give him an inf- some information about the call that was on his life. He had a very unique and special call. And he was going to end up writing uh, the majority of the New Testament. Well, the, revel, the, the gospel that he preached and the epistles that he authored, he didn't get that information from talking to the other apostles that were before him. He said, I received this revelation from Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to him and gave him the revelations that he had. Now, uh, theologians ha- call the, the body of truth that Paul brought to the church, the Pauline revelation. We won't go into a lot of detail about it now. We will later. The Pauline revelation basically just in, in, real, in real short, it covers three things. Number one, what God did through Christ in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, what God did for us in his sacrifice on Calvary. Now, what God did for us through Christ, what Christ accomplished in his Death, burial, and resurrection, what he did for us, that is mostly what is preached. That's just about all that's preached in the church today. And, and we need that. Don't misunderstand me. Not, not belittling that or, or, or anything. We need to know what he did on the cross. But the second part of the Pauline revelation is not just what he did for us on Calvary, but what he is doing in us through the word in the new birth and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. What he did for us, but now what is he doing for us now? What has he made available for us after our sins were washed away? That's the second part of the Pauline revelation. And the third part has to do what, with what he will do through us with the word of God in our mouth and our lips and as we minister to other people. And that's important too. But like I said, most all of the preaching in the church has to do with what was done for us on Calvary. Most, and I'm talking about churches that, that, that preach you know, a, a, a genuine salvation message. I'm not talking about just you know, churches by name only, but you know, good Christian churches where people are being saved. The bulk of what is preached is, has to do with what was done for us on Calvary. But you see, Jesus went to Calvary as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But when he was raised up, he was raised up as our Lord and high priest. Again, he went to Calvary as the Lamb of God, but he was raised up as our high priest. And there's a difference. Go with me to John for a moment. John's gospel, look at the 20th chapter. The 20th chapter of John. Praise the Lord. On the morning in which Jesus was raised from the dead, after he had been raised from the dead, uh, some of the women and and some of the others and disciples went to the the tomb uh, to find his body some of the women went and said that it had been taken and said in, in verse number 11, Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. Now Peter and, and John had already come and gone, but um, Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw, excuse me, she saw two angels in white, one sitting at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had laid. 
Then they said to her, woman, why are, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him that I may take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. She recognized him when he spoke to her. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. The older regular King James says, do not touch me. Do not touch me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but I go to my brethren and, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Jesus told Mary on that morning, he said, do not touch me, do not handle me and, and, and do not try to embrace me, do not try to cling to me because I am going to the Father. He said, go and tell my disciples that I'm going to the Father. And, and so, you know, she went his, her way. Now, if you, if, you, if you hold that passage and go over to Luke, look in the 24th chapter of Luke, you'll see that later in the evening, on the same day, Luke 24, <clears throat> praise the Lord, in verse number 36, the disciples were meeting together that night, and as, as, uh, as they spoke, Jesus himself, verse 26, stood in the midst of them and said, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a ghost, a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Now that night, when Jesus appeared to them, he said, handle me. Hold my, take hold of my hands and, and my feet. He told Thomas, he said, put your, put your hand into my side. He said, you can handle me. But that morning, he told Mary, do not touch me. Why? Because as high priest, Jesus had to go and all, he had not yet. When he said, I'm going to my father and your father, he's not talking about going there to, uh, he's not talking about his ascension and seating at the right hand of God. Because Later that night, he was back and he stayed on the earth another 40 days. Isn't that right? Before he ascended into heaven and sat down the right hand of the Father. So when Jesus said that morning, don't touch me because I've, I've not yet ascended to my Father and your Father, he was talking about the fact that as high priest, he had to go into heaven and offer his blood in the heavenly holies and offer his blood upon the altar to obtain eternal redemption for us. And so as that high priest, he couldn't be defiled and he couldn't be held back. He said, don't touch me, don't cling to me, I have something to accomplish. Well, praise the Lord. Go over to Hebrews again. Hebrews. Let's look at verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things, this, I'm sorry, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, 23. 
Therefore, it was necessary that the copy of these things in the heavens should be purified with these things. But this talking about the copies were Moses' things, the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the, and then the temple. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, now get this, once... At the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. As it is appointed for men once to die and after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart for sin for salvation. Now here's the thing that I, that I wanted to get to this morning. I've run out of time, but I want you to get hold of this. When Jesus ascended, that morning with his blood and he, when, when he brought that blood and placed it on the altar before God, he obtained an eternal redemption. It doesn't have to be done again, it was done once. And it says here that in verse number 26, now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, it is true that he cleansed us from sins. His blood washes us from sins, plural. But this verse doesn't say sins, plural. This verse says sin, singular. What Jesus did when he took his blood before, the, uh, before God in the heavenly holiest place and placed that, his blood upon the altar. It cleansed us from not just sins, plural, but it cleansed us from the sin nature. It put away the sin nature in man for those who would believe. It only works for those who believe. You see, your sins were washed away, but more, even more important Importantly than that, not only were your sins washed away, your sin nature was dealt with. Too many Christians have the idea that believers have a dual nature. They have a sin nature and then they have a righteousness nature, a God side, but that's not true. We only have one nature on the inside. If you've been born again, the old man, remember it says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Now, I've been talking about old things in, from the standpoint of old things you did and your sins and your past life. But really, when you think about that, it's not just the actions that passed away. Your old man passed away. The old man who was dead and trespasses and sins passed away. Well, when that happened and you were recreated, you weren't recreated with that old nature. You were recreated with a new nature. 
Because we have a new nature on the inside, we don't, because of that, we don't serve God by works of the flesh, outward works. We serve him gladly and willingly because on the inside we've been made right with God. We have the, we have the will to do. There's, there's something about a person when you got born again, you might have had all sorts of things that you enjoy doing. Now, when you're backslidden, as long as I had been backslidden, whenever I was a teenager and a young man, I had, I had done my best. It was only by the grace of God that I survived. But I did my best to separate myself from everything I had ever heard and known about, about the Bible and about living for God. And I had gotten to a place where I, where I had seared my conscience in a lot of things. And I just, I enjoyed sin. I'm not trying to be funny. I enjoyed living the life that I lived. Now, there was a certain amount of, of dissatisfaction gnawing on the inside, but I had gotten to where I, I liked the life that I lived. And I didn't want to serve God. I, I enjoyed my rebellious ways. But when I got back into fellowship with the Lord, and the same thing happens when a person gets saved, when you got saved, suddenly you realize on the inside, you don't want to do the stuff you used to want to do. What happened? You, you got a new nature. You received a new nature when you were born again, and now you want to please God. I, I, I explained a few weeks ago, you know, I, I, before I got back in the fellowship of the Lord, I could not imagine it would, it would have been a painful, distressful thought to think of going to church. Why in the world would I want to go to church? But when I got back into fellowship of the Lord, all of a sudden, I wanted to go to church. And so I went back to this, to this you know, Pentecostal church that I had been raised in. Now, you know, I was a, a you know, a, a countercultural kind of guy. You know, I was a, we were called hippies back then. And, you know, I thought the straight world was just too much. I, I couldn't even cope with it, you know. And... Here I am, long hair, tattered clothes. I came into church, you know, I had a headband on and, you know, bell-bottom jeans, tattered, you know, tie-dyed shirt, had a, a leather belt with marijuana leaves embossed on it, you know. And here I am sitting on the front row, you know, of this cracker Pentecostal church. And... There's no earthly explanation for that. And I was so happy to be there. What had happened? Something had changed on the inside of me. Before that had happened, I couldn't, I couldn't have, I, that would have been in the last place I wanted to be. And suddenly I wanted to be there and I'm around, and this is a very conservative church and I was anything but conservative. It was very conservative people, you know, what we would call today crackers and rednecks, you know. And I just loved them. I just loved I just loved being there and I loved shaking their hands and just fellowship. Wow, something had happened. Something that, that's what happens when a person is born again. Something changes on the inside and you want the things that you used to not want to do, you want to do. And the things you used to want to do, you don't want to do anymore. 
Now that doesn't mean you will not slip up and yield to temptation to do other things that you know that are wrong. I'm not saying that you won't slip up because many times we do. But you got a minute? Go to John. Go to John. I got started late. Go to John. Huh? Yeah, it's a holiday weekend. That's right. Glory to God. Thank you, Angela. I've been wondering when we're going to go to 1.30 or 2. This might be the Sunday. (laughs) Oh, glory. Don't get nervous. Look at uh, John, first, first John, first epistle of John, chapter five. First John, chapter five. And look at verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. It says we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Well, does that describe you? This is what the Bible says. Have you been born of God? We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Go back to the third chapter. You want me to take that? Tell them I'm busy. And call them back later. Hallelujah. Look at uh, third chapter, verse number eight and nine. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. There it is twice. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his, God's seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, this is two passages in the the mouth of two or three witnesses. These are two passages that tell us that the Christian, the believer, does not sin. But remember when I've talked to you about a Bible interpretation and having a balanced approach to Scripture, you have to look at all Scriptures. And, for instance, go over to the first chapter of John. Verse number eight, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In James, he said, uh, if anyone's sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let, let them lay, anoint him with oil, lay hands on him, anointing with oil. And that the prayer of faith will heal the sick. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Paul criticized the church at Corinth because of their uh, conduct and not walking in love towards another, one another. He said, when you sin against the brethren this way, you sin against Christ. So we have other passages of scriptures that talk to us about Christians sinning. So what 
what do you do when, when the Bible seems to say two different, two different things? Have you ever done this? You probably have. Have you ever looked at something at a distance and held your finger up and closed one eye and go back and forth between the two eyes? You ever done that? You ever notice that each, you know, you look at your eye, one, you get a different image? Which one's right? Both of them. And if, you, and if something happened to one of your eyes, if you were blinded in one of your eyes, you would only have that one-dimensional view. And that one-dimensional view is accurate, but you need a three-dimensional view in order to navigate. To really get the full picture, you need a three-dimensional view. Well, you can go through the Bible and look at certain scriptures and you'll have a one-dimensional view. And it's accurate, but there's another view. And it's accurate. And you put them together, you have a balanced view of Scripture. And so when the Bible says that uh, clearly there is provision for us when we sin. And we know that Christians sin just because we know ourselves. And we know one another. Isn't that right? But yet it says over there, he who was born of God does not sin. That's why a lot of modern translations, they take liberty here, but it's necessary to keep from giving the wrong impression. And they say, he who is born of God does not practice sin as a lifestyle. See, that's the difference. A person who is born of God does not sin, does not just live a life of willingly, willingly sinning and it doesn't bother him. He just lives that way. If you're born again, you don't. And a, and a person who can just do wrong and just sin and live any way he wants to and claim he's a Christian, if, if that's the case, I have, to, uh, I have to conclude he's not been born again. Because he who is born of God cannot live a lifestyle of per, just, just willingly and without any uh, 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 problem or, or any condemnation, just do wrong. See, that's what I did when I was out of fellowship with the Lord and I had severed my conscience. I could just do whatever I wanted to. But when I got back in the fellowship with the Lord, that, that was on the inside of me, came up again, and suddenly I, I, I've got to do right. I, I've, I've got to do right. Now, I was tempted to do wrong and sometimes I still yielded to temptation. But more and more, over time, as I grew in the Lord, I yielded to temptation less and less and less. Why? Because his seed remained in me and I cannot sin. I cannot live that way. I cannot go that way because his life on the inside, that's that new nature. You've been given a new nature and it is not a sinful nature. It's a righteous nature. You've been put into right standing, yes, that's true, but it's not just a position, it's a reality because your nature has been changed. Oh, glory to God. The, the want to sin has been taken out of you and the want to serve God has been put in you. Glory to God. And so we serve God and we live the Christian life not based on just doing right and you know, doing right, avoiding wrong, just working. We don't work on a checklist. 
We live out of the inside, enlightened with the word. We need the word of God to help, uh, to help train us and to, to renew our mind and the blood of Jesus to constantly uh, uh, cleanse our conscience from sin so that we're living out of a life of being open to God. And when we miss it, when you miss it, when you do something wrong, you don't need anybody to tell you. You know on the inside. You know right on the inside. And when you do wrong and you know it on the inside, we just read over there in 1 John, he tells us what to do. He said, if you sin, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So there is, uh, and, and so I've, I know people that, uh, that take those scriptures that we read in, in 1 John there that says that he who has been born of God does not sin. I, I've heard and I've read people recently that say Christians don't sin. He said, I, I never sin. We don't sin. No Christian sins. It's impossible to sin. I said, well, well why then did, did he, why did, if John meant that, why in the same epistle did he give us provision for when we sin? If he said Christians never sin, see, it can't miss that. That's not what, it can't mean that. But people can take things out of of. Uh, they're setting and close their eyes to everything else that's in the Bible because they like this one vision they've got, this one view, and they've got all the scriptures that support that one view, and they go through life that way. But you know what happens if you walk through life with one dimension? You reach out to grab something, and you'll put your hand through the wall because you don't judge depth. Isn't that right? Whenever you, got, there, you, you can't make your way through life looking through the scriptures in one dimension. You have to take what the Bible says, put it together so that you've got a full view. Glory to God. And so we live a life that's pleasing to God because he made us righteous, but he also put a new nature in us. And that new nature ensures that we are always being drawn in the right direction. The Holy Spirit that's on the inside, he's always prompting us to do the right thing, to, to, to do what's pleasing to him. And, and if we stray from that, we can do things that are not pleasing. And they are not pleasing. Sinful things do not please God. He is displeased, but it doesn't change our position with Christ. That's the thing. It doesn't change the fact that we've been made accepted and that we, are, we have right standing with God, and that's why we can go boldly into his presence. Even when you've missed it, even when you've done wrong, you still have standing with God. Why? Because your nature's been changed. You have the right nature. That's what God did in us. He did some things for us, but we've got to become acquainted with what he did in us and what he is doing today in us. Oh, hallelujah. I tell you what, it, it'll free you from the struggle of never feeling like you measure up and then never feeling like you are qualified for God's blessing. Listen, in the final analysis, your qualification doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with God and what he did for you. And, and, and because of that, you want to do right. Now, it doesn't mean that, that, this is why some people looking at it one view, they say, well, even when we miss it, our sins are forgiven and, and, and they're forgiven even while we're doing it. In other words, if you, if you uh, commit some kind of a sin today, it was forgiven at the Calvary, it was forgiven when you did it, it was forgiven, there's nothing, there's no sin there. That's not true. 
Because he told us to confess our sins. Isn't that right? And, and it said, if he has forgiven, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him if he has the elders to pray for him in faith. So, so the Bible teaches that yes, sin is real and it has to be dealt with, but the thing about it is it doesn't affect your right standing with God. Oh, hallelujah. Isn't that good news? At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.